We are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8 today. Uh, but as uh, we get older, we see lots of advancements, right? Technological improvements. We develop uh, and things that we use in our past over time becomes obsolete, right? Uh, these products, these inventions, these things that, that were latest phase or, cra- or craze or fad, these aspects of like, I have to have this, and it consumes us, and we're willing to spend anything to get it, that eventually over time just becomes a giant paperweight Uh, or becomes a piece in a museum of what once used to be, right? So let me give you a couple examples of things that are now obsolete. Uh, In terms of the military, you know, the the cavalry was one of the greatest strengths of a military because of the lightning speed uh, on horseback could provide movement of troops and reconnaissance uh, and the ability to to attack an enemy uh, and overwhelm them. Well, the cavalry became obsolete with the lightning speed of the machine gun, that having a person on a horse really became completely worthless uh, and no longer useful. Uh, In terms of the internet, right, that once we now have it on the computer, I'm sure many of you are extremely sad uh, that you no longer get the phone book on your driveway anymore, right? Um, Along with the internet, I used to work at a thrift store, and I actually worked in the book section. And the one time I was out back, and I had gotten an entire set of an encyclopedia. And I just was throwing it into the dumpster. And there was an older gentleman, and he said, why are you doing that? And I I said, what do you mean? He said, do you know how valuable those are? And I said, sir, I, I understand your concern, but let me explain something to you. I have two sets of encyclopedias up on the bookshelves right now. Each set is selling for a dollar. Nobody wants them. And you know what? Nobody bought them, and I threw them out because everything is now on our phones. And speaking of that, when is the last time any of you have made a call on a payphone or have even seen one around, right? It's almost like I find them at camping grounds still, that there's like these artifacts that still linger because campgrounds haven't updated themselves. Um, You know, or how many of you remember at a time in this church where song was not on the PowerPoint, but somebody sat up front on the overhead projector and had to time it just right to get the next slide up, right? Because now that music is on our phones, uh, it replaced the MP3 player, which replaced the Discman, which replaced the Walkman or the cassette tape, which replaced the A-Track, which replaced the, um, uh, the, the, um, the record player, thank you. And I hate to say this, hopefully nobody goes this far back, but replace the phonograph. Right? Things that have become obsolete, uh, we look back at and we remember fondly, right? But, but as times progress, again, things develop and we just don't need them anymore. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, I'm going to have to explain a lot to my kids because they have no idea what was just said up here, right? But as we go through the book of Hebrews today, and again, as the author is speaking to these scattered group of, uh, of believers and as they're struggling with this dynamic, uh, he's constantly reminding them that Christ 
is better than anything in their lives and anything in their history. So again, we've talked about the prophets, the angels, Abraham, Joshua, Moses, the Sabbath rest, and we spent the past few weeks talking about the high priest and this guy, Melchizedek, and he says, look, we're now going to look at this part of our culture over the next couple of chapters, and in that, what he's saying is, is that Christ has made these parts of our history obsolete, that what they are were a temporary time period of our faith and understanding, but now that Christ has come, we no longer need those parts of our history. So that's what we're going to look at really today and over the next couple of weeks as we go through chapters 8 through 10. So let's read chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and it says here, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If we were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They are a shadow. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant, of which he is mediator and is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. So right now, this is just a recap of everything that we just talked about in chapters 5 through 7. And again, he says Christ is, is our high priest. He's better than any high priest that we have. Remember, he's in heaven 24-7, 365 days a year. He is, has direct access to the Father. This is not one time a year he comes into the Holy of Holies, but he's always there mediating on our behalf. Okay, So he has the direct access to it. Also, he offers up sacrifices, but instead of offering this yearly sacrifice, remember, he was the perfect sacrifice of God. He was the, the perfect lamb of God because of his obedience to the heavenly father, unlike these priests who had to make a sacrifice on their behalf first because of their sins and he doesn't come from the tribe of Levi or Aaron. Remember, that's what we said, that in order to be a high priest, you had to come through the priestly line. Well, he came through the line of Melchizedek, which is a permanent and forever lasting line, right? There is no other high priest after Jesus Christ because he is the final and permanent one. So all of our worship should be directed towards Christ, and it's interesting that, again, in here he says that this is a shadow. It is a copy of what is actually the true reality of heaven. And he quotes this passage here from Exodus 25:40 about how we specifically need to build the tabernacle. Okay, so we're gonna we need to dive into that a little bit more if we want to really try to understand why is he quoting Exodus twenty five forty? It seems like a very random passage 
to do. So in order to understand this, we have to realize that God is not OCD and he's not struggling with everything having to be perfect details. But the point of this is that God is having a progressive revelation to his people about ultimately who is to come into Christ. And so that's why he's setting everything up here because he's prepping the people in their hearts to say, I'm doing this now so that way when Christ comes, you can make the connection from here to Christ. Okay, so that's why he's setting all of this up. So we need to go back to Exodus chapter 19. The people are wandering through the desert, right? They've come out of Egyptian slavery. They're wandering through the desert. He calls Moses up to uh, Mount Sinai, and he says to him here, he says, I'm going to basically give you the commands. I'm going to give you the law that your people are to follow. So in Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6, here's what it says. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So then what he does is he goes through all of the Ten Commandments. He talks about how that's supposed to work. And he has all kinds of instructions, things on property, things on social responsibility, and and aspects about justice, the Sabbath, and how we're to treat that. And all of these different kind of festivals, he, he lays out and says, here's what my people are supposed to do. And then as Moses shares these instructions with the people, in Exodus chapter 24, 7 through 8, he says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And then God says, I have some more instructions for you. Now I'm going to tell you how to build this tabernacle, how to build this tent, set it up where I am going to come and dwell. And so he gives instructions on that. He talks about the Ark of of the Covenant, where the law is going to be placed and how to specifically build that. He talks about the altar, the different furnishings, uh, the courtyard, what the priests are supposed to wear, the offerings, the incense. He even gives them a detail that I'm going to have the ceremonial basin that when you come into this tent and you need to wash, this is exactly how this basin is supposed to be made. Okay, So he has very strict guidelines about what God wants for his people. And then he comes all the way to Deuteronomy. Again, he's going to retell the Israelites all of the things that God has said. And again, in chapter 28, he says, look, if you obey these, here will be the blessings. And if you fail, these are the list of the curses that are going to happen. Okay. So again, remember in 1950 in Exodus, he uses the word if. God has these covenants with his people. Some of them are unconditional, and it is God's responsibility to fulfill them regardless of what we do. 
But in this case, the covenant is conditional. That if you do this, you will be blessed. If you fail to follow these instructions, there is going to be a curse placed upon you. Okay? So he says this to Moses, and this is why the author of Hebrews is repeating it, because again, he's saying, look, this covenant that we're now about to talk about here had very specific instructions for our people to follow. And this copy, this shadow, is going to be reiterated in chapter 9 and chapter 10 as well, because again, he's saying this piece of old is going to make sense when the new in Christ comes. That's why this is here, so we understand exactly who Christ is, because remember, they are struggling what to do in this time of persecution, okay? So that's, that's where we're at, that Christ is ultimately better. So that is all the setup to the covenant. Again, if we were alive, all of this would have made sense, and I wouldn't have to have gone through all of that information. So now we come to verse 7. He says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people. So he doesn't offer much here in terms of what is the actual covenant, what is the actual promise that we have. Again, the assumption is the individuals understand the Old Testament, they understand the covenant, they understand the law, they understand the promises, there's no need to do it. So if we don't do any more studying, for us, again, this is not going to make a lot of sense. So now we have to dive a little bit further into trying to understand the complete totality of what was the purpose of the Old Testament law. Okay, so go back to Exodus 19, right? If, if, if you obey me fully, again, 19 verses 5 and 6, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So we get where it comes from, but now what is the purpose of the law? Why is it there for his people? Well, again, they're going to be a kingdom, a treasured possession, a holy nation. In order to do that, they have to adhere to what this law is, okay? Because the purpose was that this group of people was to be set apart from all of the pagan nations that existed around them, that the way that they lived, God would bless his people, and all of these other pagan nations would look at the Israelites and go, do you see what their God has done for them? Do you see that their God is stronger than any of the man-made idols that we worship or any of the gods that we have created? That their God stands above any of our gods. And ultimately, that through that, these pagan nations would turn to Israel and say, we want your God because he is the one true God that exists. That's what the law was intending to do for these individuals. So he lays out the set of do's and don'ts, that through all of these different spheres of life, they would obey, God would bless, and the nations would see it and say, 
I want your God. Now, the problem is, what happens with the Israelites? Well, they were constantly embroiled in a life of sin. That they were supposed to follow the law and failed to follow the law. And so instead of blessing, what were they given? Curses. And Jeremiah shows up, one of the prophets, and he's actually going to quote Jeremiah here in the next passage. And in Jeremiah 25, he says to the southern kingdom of Judah, so again, the kingdom's going to split Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel has already been really naughty. They've already been taken over by the Assyrians. That's their, that was their punishment. And now he's speaking to the southern kingdom, and he's saying, look, Judah, because of your failing to obey, there is going to be a punishment, and here's what it is. The Lord had sent all of his servants, the prophets, to you again and again. You have not listened or paid attention. They said, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices. You can stay in the land the Lord gave to you, your ancestors, for an ever and ever. Do not follow the other gods to serve and worship. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. And then I will not harm you. But, but you didn't listen to me, declares the Lord. You have aroused my anger, and what your hands have made, you have brought harm on yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened, I will summon the peoples of the north, and sent my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all of the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and they will serve the nations, will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Because you have failed to uphold the standard of this law to prove the holiness of God, you will spend the next 70 years in captivity. That is your punishment for failing to do what I've asked you to do. Okay, so, so that was the old covenant. That was the standard of law to prove God's holiness to the world, to show the world who they were. But the author says, look, there was a problem with the old covenant. And really, the problem is, is twofold. One, with the covenant itself, and two, with the people of the covenant. Now, when I say there was a problem with the Old Covenant, we can't take this and say, wait, God made a covenant and he actually made a mistake in the covenant? No, that's not what I'm saying. God doesn't make mistakes. The problem with the covenant was that people misunderstood the purpose of the covenant. Okay? And so they saw it as a series of do's and don'ts, that if I do this, I will earn God's righteousness, and I will earn his salvation. So therefore, if I just keep doing what's in the law, God will love me, and I will get a special place in his kingdom. That's the way they interpreted the law. And God said, no, 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 that's not the point of the law. The point of the law was to prove holiness in who I am but yet they've taken it 
as a source of their salvation. So in Galatians 3, when he's speaking to the church of Galatia, he really kind of lays this out for the people. And he says, look, he says, guys, don't you get this? You are not justified by the law. You are not made right by the law. He said, the law doesn't save you from the curse of the law. The law just tells you exactly what's right and what's wrong. Remember, I made a promise to Abraham that I said, through Abraham, the nations will be blessed. Guys, my salvation is through a promise. My salvation is not adherence to the law. And if it was, then my promise is null and void. Why did I make that promise to Abraham? So they've missed the entire point of the law. And then when we read further in Romans 3, 3.20, it says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And in 3.23, he ends up saying, But all have fallen short of obeying the law. Okay, so the law doesn't make you righteous. Really, all the law did was a standard that said what was right and what was wrong. And in Galatians 3.24, it says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Again, Old Testament is going to point us to the new covenant in Christ. The law here was to point us to Christ. But what they did was, is they thought that this was going to save them. And the author is saying, guys, you dramatically missed what the law was intended to do. The law was not good or bad. It was the standards of God's holiness. People, though, could not live up to this standard, but yet they viewed it that if I obey, I will be saved. So that's the first problem is their misinterpretation. And here's the second problem. It was the fault of the people. If we could, let's just say, hypothetically, by obeying the law, you would actually be saved. Well, what did the law actually prove? You were a sinner and you actually couldn't uphold the law. So the problem with the people was you couldn't actually obey it in the first place. If this was meant to save You never would have been saved. Quite frankly, none of us would have ever been saved because of the law. And so this is where I find it ironic. Because as part of the law, there is a large section in there about sacrifices. Well, what was the purpose of the sacrifices? It was their way of coming to the Lord and having that sacrifice temporarily cover over their sins. It's as almost as if God knew when he wrote the law, the people weren't going to obey the law anyway and was creating a process for them to be saved through a sacrifice. Okay, so one, the law was never meant to save. And two, if it was, you could never uphold that standard. All right, so with all of that said, Now we can understand, again, this is a copy. It is a shadow of what Christ is ultimately pointing to here. Okay, So Old Testament, a set of laws to prove their holiness, to be set apart. God is the one true God, but instead the Old Covenant proves that they are sinners. 
and it was never meant to be permanent, which is why he said, essentially there, if, if this was superior, we would have never found anything in its place. We wouldn't have found something. This was always meant to be temporary in the first place. Okay? So, so that's the point. So now we come to verse 8, where he's going to quote Jeremiah 31. Again, Jeremiah prophet, northern kingdom has already collapsed. He's speaking to the southern kingdom. Hey, guys, you are going to be punished for not upholding the law. But here's the beauty of Christ. Because in this part, he offers a glimmer of hope. And here's what he says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from there, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a neighbor his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So he says, I'm going to make a new covenant here, guys. The old one was never meant to save. It was temporary. But the new one is coming. And when I make this new one, it is going to be better than the old one. It is going to be superior than the old one. And that old one came through the mediation of Moses. But now this new one is going to come through Jesus Christ. And the reason why the new one comes is because, again, the old one was not meant to save. And God knew that. And so the new covenant come and the new covenant is ushered in with Christ going to the cross and shedding his blood and dying for our wrath and just punishment. Because remember, if we don't uphold the law, it is a curse upon us. And God said, I don't want that to happen. And he sends his son to obey the law. And instead, as we get ready to go to the cross to pay our penalty, he steps in in our place and says, I will embrace the wrath of God because I love you. And so they nail him to a cross and they place a crown of thorn upon his head and they pierce him in his side and then he cries out, it is finished. Because in Luke 24, it tells us that he doesn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Because he was the only one who could perfectly obey the laws of God. And as a result of that, he was given the right to become our permanent sacrifice. And what I love about this part here in Jeremiah 31, did you guys notice in there? Five times... He uses the phrase, I will. I will make a new covenant. I will make it with the house of Israel. I will put their laws in, in their minds and their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
I will, I will, I will, I will. The old covenant was conditional based upon what we did, but the new covenant is unconditional based upon what Christ is going to do. Because that's what it was, right? The old one was all about what I could achieve, but the new one is about what God's going to do. And the new one is now instituted by Christ, ushered in by his perfect obedience. So here is the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old said, here is righteousness. And you can achieve it. And if you can achieve it, you will be blessed. But the new covenant says, here is righteousness, but I know you can't achieve it. So I will, and I will give you blessing. The old covenant said it's based upon human performance and what you do. But the new covenant says it's based upon my promise to Abraham and my faithfulness to that promise. The old one was instituted through a law which brought fear and punishment, but the new one was done through grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. The old one was an external law, but the new one is going to be an eternal law within inside ourselves. The old one temporarily covered over our sins, and now the new one is a permanent cleansing of our sins. The old was written on a tablet of stone. The new one is going to be written upon our hearts. The old one held us in bondage, where the new one brings freedom and liberty. And the old one, again, was a shadow to come where the new one is the true reality that exists. So that is the difference between the old and the new. The great philosopher Plato wrote a book called The Republic. And uh, in it, he discussed his idea of what a utopian society would look like. Now, if you don't know, many of the Greek philosophers actually hated the idea of democracy. And Plato is no different. The idea that the masses would make decisions, the unintelligent would make decisions, was just foolishness in their minds. That Plato actually argues for what he calls a philosopher king. He said, there's these different groups of people. You, you had philosophers, you had warriors, and then you had the workers. And society should be governed by those philosophers because they were wise and they were intelligent. And in this book of the Republic, he makes an analogy called the allegory of the cave. He says, look, society is like this. It's like a group of people are sitting in a cave and they're chained up. And all they can see are the shadows in front of them. And what happens is, is people behind them bring these different objects and cast fire and a shadow upon the wall. And these people are so used to seeing the shadows, and that's the only thing that they know, that they think that is the true reality. And one of them gets free, and he gets out of the cave. And as he gets out of the cave, he, he has to adjust his eyes because the light is shining on everything. And as, he, as the light shines and he begins to understand the reality, he goes, oh my gosh, that's a tree? 
All I've ever seen is a shadow of a tree. He goes, that's, that's a bird? I've never seen a bird before. All I've seen is a shadow of the bird. And he says, you know, I got to go back. I got to go back and tell these guys in the cave. And so he goes back into the cave and he says, guys, I've seen reality. And all these people do is they think he's an idiot and they ridicule him. And he goes, what are you talking about? This is true reality. And he goes, no, no, no. These are just shadows of what you're looking at. And they are so mad that they actually want to kill him instead. And I think this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He's going to these people and he's saying, guys, you're clinging to the shadows. The light of Jesus Christ has come. This is where you need to live. And they're turning and going, no, I think this is where we need to be. And he says, no, stop it. This is a figment. It's a reality. It's a copy. You need to be living in the light of Jesus Christ. But the Hebrews are torn with this. And they go, no, I think it's the law. I think if I obey, I think I find salvation. And he's like, no, Christ is your salvation. So instead of embracing him, all they're doing is crucifying him. So that's the struggle. That's the struggle for us, isn't it? That sometimes we live in the shadows and we are chained to only see the shadows on the wall. And instead of embracing Christ and freeing ourselves, we continue to be, remain locked up thinking, no, no, I think this, this is better. And this is the tension in which we often live with. See, we, we live in a, in a world of pluralism where there are multiple religions and, and these multiple religions meld together across the world. And what do these religions often do is they have a series of laws that say, if you want to earn salvation, here are the laws that you must obey. And oftentimes, that law is really just a series of moral goodness. But as Christians, we understand that salvation is not a series of laws or, or, or religion. We base our faith on a relationship with Jesus Christ that is freely given to us because we failed to uphold the law. So what does it do? It becomes a war of religion versus relationship in our soul, right? So many times we go, but God, if I do this, God, if I do this, won't you love me more? God, if I, if I, if I just show up to church, we'll be okay, God. Me and you will be good. There's a big renovation project. If I just serve a couple times and help out at the church, that, that should be good, right, God? And, and that, that's where we live constantly. That, that is the old, that, that is religion. And he's saying, it's not about that. It's about the relationship that you have with me. And that's where, again, society lives, right? The, where, where they think that if we do these acts of goodness, we will earn a place in the throne of God. And what we don't realize so often is these acts that we do are so often filthy rags to God because 
They're not out of good, heartful intentions for our Savior, but so many times they're selfish acts thinking that we can earn something from him. And every time we do a good deed, we have to look inside our hearts and remember that that temporary moment act of goodness does not excuse the giant cesspool of sin that we swim in every single day that lingers within our hearts. Those acts of goodness will never wash away the stench of sin in our lives. But as we stand on the word of God, the inerrant truth, the holy truth, this is what this scripture says. What does it communicate to us? That the only thing that takes away the tarnish of sins is Jesus Christ. And so if we ever think that our good works will save us, they will not. Because it means we're relying upon a law that will only condemn us for how bad of people that we are. So if we want salvation, it comes only through Christ. The old covenant, be kind, love each other, be a good person. That is what the world will tell us. Good works, kindness, and good people don't go to heaven. Sinners who recognize that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ are the ones who are adopted into his heavenly kingdom. So that is the old versus the new. So let us remember, salvation is through faith and not obedience to the law. And Christ is the mediator of a better covenant than the old. Let's pray. Father, this is a, um, a message that so clearly rings with our culture. Lord, it, it is a message that the world puts out there to us constantly. And Lord, we can't live up to that standard. We never could live up to that standard. That, that's why, Lord, you, you set up the sacrifices to un- have us understand that one day the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ would come. Lord, let us not hold on to the thought that I am good enough, but instead, Lord, change our mind to understand that I will never be good enough. But thanks and praise and glory to you that has said to us that you would embrace our wrath and punishment, that you would save us, because that is the unconditional promise that you gave to Abraham for all generations that promised a blessing to the entire world that one day would destroy sin and allow forgiveness in our relationship back with you. Lord, if we struggle, I pray that we would reach out to someone. If we are wrestling in our minds with that, again, let us not go home before we've touched base with someone that we've come with, an elder. Talk to me, Lord. I pray, God, I pray desperately that the veil of good works would be ripped away from our eyes and instead we would see the light that shines down from heaven, which was your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.